From the CQ Roll Call Newsroom in Washington, this is CQ's Eye on Congress Big Story Podcast, your nonpartisan news source for how Congress and the federal government shape the real world. The United States spends close to $11 million a day bombing Islamic State targets in Iraq and Syria. But efforts to stop ISIS ideology from spreading at home are embryonic, with a $10 million Homeland Security Task Force aimed at countering violent extremism. Membership in a terrorist organization or being included on a watch list doesn't automatically disqualify someone from buying a gun in the United States. It takes another factor, like having a felony conviction or an illegal immigration status. These are among the facts that will confront Congress in the wake of the mass shooting at a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida, that claimed 50 lives. So far, the response from lawmakers is familiar, with Republicans calling for stricter counterterrorism measures and Democrats insisting on tougher gun laws. I'm Adriel Bettelheim with CQ Roll Call, joined by domestic threats reporter Gopal Ratnam and appropriations reporter Jennifer Shutt. Gopal, the specter of a U.S. citizen falling under the influence of the Islamic State, as was the case here, is something that's been a huge concern. But law enforcement efforts to get a handle on radicalization are still just getting off the ground, right? That's correct. Um, And it's not just law enforcement, because what law enforcement typically does is find potential criminals and catch them and arrest them. But this is an effort where I think the United States government is still trying to get its arms around how do you find people who have bad thoughts or have ideas about committing violence and preventing them before they get to the stage of actually committing the violence. So like the FBI director James Comey said, we cannot arrest our way out of this problem. So you need a mechanism to intervene in the lives of young people as they are in the process of absorbing some of these violent messages from abroad. So that is the larger struggle that the U.S. agencies are confronted with at this moment. And like you pointed out in your introduction, the Department of Homeland Security has just set up the Office of Community Partnerships, whose goal is to reach out to some of the biggest metropolitan areas in the country with a majority Muslim population and try to educate the community, which includes the religious institutions, the nonprofit groups that work in that area, as well as the local law enforcement agencies on how to identify somebody who's potentially headed down the path of trouble and how to intervene in their lives without a police action. So that's where the process is in the moment. And the agency is still trying to figure out how to do this. How do you fund programs like that? So that's where we are. Uh, Last year's catch-all spending bill for the first time directed uh, this $10 million toward helping states and local governments find ways of stopping youths from coming under the sway of violent militant groups. Is the effort likely to accelerate in the wake of Orlando? One can see that lawmakers want sort of response and an instant action, but this is likely to be a very long-term problem. And as I have been reporting and talking to people at the Department of Homeland Security and some of the lawmakers, one of the questions I've asked them is how do you figure out how effective a program is. If you look at law enforcement, if you catch a criminal, and that's a statistic, and then you have, at the end of the year, the number of people you've arrested, uh, and so on, for various types of crimes. But in in a case like this, where you're trying to prevent somebody from going down the wrong path, then the challenge is to figure out, if I give you 5 million, 10 million, or whatever number of millions of dollars, How effectively is that money being used? 
And so I think agencies and lawmakers are still in the process of trying to understand, quote unquote, what the metrics are. How do you judge effectiveness of a program? Also, there's our legal in issues in terms of could the federal government fund a, uh, a religious institution which is trying to prevent young people from going down the wrong path? Um, would th that would raise constitutional barriers for uh, the U.S. government getting involved in uh, matters of religion. So all those rules and regulations are still being formulated, and that's where we are. And as we were talking just a little while ago before the show began, there are some really good examples of what other countries have done, like the United Kingdom and Denmark, for example. In the case of United Kingdom, I've been speaking to a few people who have been involved in the program. They have a top to down from the federal government all the way to local agencies, local counties, and so on, where it becomes a responsibility of every school teacher, every hospital worker, and so on, with whom the public could interact on a variety of levels. And if the school teacher or the doctor spots a person who is potentially espousing bad ideas, then it becomes their responsibility to speak up. So it's almost as if it's the human version of if you see something, say something. If you see somebody or encounter an individual who has these ideas and who is talking about these ideas, then it becomes a legal requirement for that individual to report that up. We haven't gotten to that point yet. We may get to that point, but that's still a debate that is yet to happen in the United States. I'm curious. It's come to light that the Florida gunman was uh, tracked by the FBI in 2013 and 2014, but the probe was closed when authorities couldn't find new material. Uh, do you think the agency is likely to get any heat from Congress over this or, for that matter, new enforcement powers? Well, it's possible. I mean, if uh, this individual was on the radar screen and for some whatever reason it might emerge during this, in, uh, during this inquiry, why he was dropped out of that inquiry and what led the FBI to close that case. Until now, actually, the FBI has been criticized for the opposite. In fact, in the last couple of months, there have been a series of reports showing that the FBI is overusing stings. So it basically has been accused of in fact, there was some statistic in the New York Times last week that shows that two out of three prosecutions of individuals involved in potentially planning an attack came out of sting operations, where there's an undercover agent or an informant who is potentially enticing, entrapping even, an individual to commit an act of violence. And in fact, there was one particular case where this guy was um, um, arrested where the undercover officer from the FBI provided $40 for this individual to buy material because the, the person was a homeless man who was mentally disabled and he did not have the money to buy the supplies. And he was then given money to buy supplies that could potentially be used in an attack. And so there's been a lot of criticism that FBI has been using these methods to entice and entrap people into committing acts of violence. So I think this is going to be a debate where lawmakers have to figure out, does giving more authority to an agency, will that, how does it solve the problem? It goes back to the first issue we talked about, which is, can you arrest your way out of this? Right. And how do you prevent people from going down the wrong path to begin with? 
Now, Jennifer Schutt, this attack is sure to revive a host of gun control proposals. One pressure point is disqualifying anyone on the terror watch list from, from buying a gun. Uh, you write that they're likely to come in the form of Democratic amendments to spending bills, the only legislative game in town. Um, coincidentally, the bill that funds the Justice Department is due up in the Senate this week, right? Yeah, so Leader McConnell filed a procedural motion to bring that spending bill to the floor last week, which of course was before the shooting took place in Orlando this weekend. So it is a coincidence that the Commerce Justice Science spending bill is coming to the floor this week, but that would provide a timely avenue for Senate Democrats if they wanted to, to bring up gun control amendments. The uh, votes, uh, like on background checks, would, if, if nothing else, enhanced background checks, that is, would, if nothing else, put lawmakers on the record in an election year. Uh, is that pattern of gun control votes we're likely to see in the Senate uh, also going to be seen in the House as well? The House is a completely different issue. Any of the spending bills have to go through the Rules Committee first in the House. On the first two spending bills that got brought to the floor this year, those were taken up under open rules, meaning that any member of the House could bring up any amendment they wanted. And we saw that quickly turn into a bit of a ruckus and a bit of a problem for Speaker Ryan when Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney offered his LGBT non-discrimination amendment to the Military Construction VA bill and then the Energy Water bill. After that, a decision was made to begin moving spending bills to the floor under structured rules. So what that means is that any of the bills that could see gun control amendments in the House, those amendments will likely get held back in Rules Committee. That's not a 100% guarantee, um, but at least that committee will most likely serve as sort of a filter. They'll see all the amendments ahead of time. They'll be able to potentially speak with leadership about what should move forward and what should not move forward. So while we expect Congressman Maloney to continue offering LGBT equality amendments, and there is a very strong possibility that other Democrats will offer gun control measures, whether or not those actually make it to the House floor remains to be determined. So uh, a more open debate in the more freewheeling Senate where the, uh, the rules are different. Uh, Republican efforts uh, to boost counterterrorism spending could bust agreed upon budget caps. So how would uh, Speaker Paul Ryan and his team address that? Do they have to find cuts elsewhere in the budget? This is going to be an issue that our appropriations team watches very closely this week. The House is scheduled to bring up the fiscal 2017 defense appropriations bill this week. It's a very large bill. A lot of, a lot of amendments are expected to be offered to it. Um, and if Republicans want to plus up homeland security spending or counterterrorism spending in this particular bill, they will likely have to make cuts to other sections of the bill in order to keep it under those caps that were established last October in the budget agreement. Gopal? I'd like to add that, I mean, we talked about this in your first question, which is it's not clear that actually giving more money to uh, an effort under the Department of Homeland Security is going to somehow instantly produce results. Even if the department had everything in place, it might take years or even a decade before it has a really functioning program that can identify people in trouble and stop them from getting into acts of violence. So that's that's something that perhaps lawmakers have to consider before they open up their wallet and give more money. As politically appealing as that may be. Indeed. Domestic threats reporter Gopal Ratnam and appropriations reporter Jennifer Shutt, my thanks. 
I'm Adriel Bettelheim. Until next time, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at CQ Now, and you can download our podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. 